Well, good morning. If you want to open up your Bibles to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 22, we're going to spend most of our time in verses uh, 63 through the end of the chapter, 63 through 71 or so, but just hold your Bibles open to the book of Luke. I'll do the same in chapter 22, and we'll have lots to look at as we work through God's word today. I was looking at my calendar and noticed that in less than a month, Wes and I will be going to the monster truck jam. This will be our first monster truck jam held indoors. Uh, these are the luxury monster truck jams in the monster truck jam world, the, the indoor ones. Do you remember the old uh, redneck jokes from Jeff Foxworthy? Uh, I remember hearing those and thinking, man, some of these are hitting kind of close to home. Uh, it's funny, my, I think some of this is genetic. I look at my son now, 16 years old. Pretty much always has a camouflage hat on, drives an old pickup truck with a bullet hole in it. Uh, uh, some of this has to be genetic, I'm realizing. He wasn't raised in that environment, but it's still there. I was looking through those jokes, and, and there are a number of them that kind of speak to me at certain levels. One of them speaks to my son, this, this first one. If you might, you might be a redneck if the blue book value of your truck goes up and down, depending on how much gas it has in it. This is a good one for church. You, you, if you've ever made change in the offering plate, you might be a redneck. This one I remember as part of my childhood, part of it. If you bought a VCR because wrestling comes on while you're at work, you might be a redneck. And the one I found that I hadn't heard before is, uh, is if you think loading the dishwasher means getting your wife drunk, you might be a redneck. I don't know too many jokes that offend both feminists and Baptists at the same time. <laughs> I'm going to keep that one. <laughs> you know, being a redneck in, in parts of my family and parts of where I'm from is a badge of honor. And, and at the parts where it's not a badge of honor, it's at least a neutral thing. But I was studying a different word this morning in scriptures, the, uh, this, this week in the scriptures, the word stiff-necked. And this one's a problem. Uh, the word stiff-necked Mostly appears in the King James Version. I found it a few times, other versions as well. But it refers to someone who is disastrously self-deluded and prideful and unteachable and full of themselves. You know, there are these passages in Scripture where God laments to his prophet something to the effect of, All day long I have held out my hands to a stiff-necked people. Proverbs 29.1 says, he who is often reproved, yet stiffens his neck, will suddenly be broken beyond healing. He who is often reproved, yet stiffens his neck, will suddenly be broken beyond healing. The real concern about being stiff-necked is that you don't know you're stiff-necked. And after many, uh, uh, many reproofs, many attempts to repent, many opportunities to repent, the, repent, the stiff-necked person will eventually be broke beyond healing. This is important for us because this is 
honestly, our most dangerous spiritual condition. This is, this is the worst place we could possibly be. We need to know it well. Someone, someone talked this week. I heard a, a pastor that I, I like to listen to talk this week about how he, he, he's doing a podcast, and every week he's going to talk about a new sin. And someone said, that's kind of gloomy. Like, why would you, why would you talk about every sin for, like, for years on top? Go catalog all the sins in Scripture. Why would you do that? And he said, well, I do that because a sinner should be concerned about sin the same way a man walking through a minefield should be concerned about mines. And this particular condition, being stiff-necked, is, in fact, the mine that will ultimately destroy every soul. This is, this is the f- final death. This is the, the, this is the final disease that, that does lead to death. And, and that's, that's so crucial that we see that. And, and in this passage in Luke 22, we have very, very great, very complex, comprehensive evidences of what it looks like to be stiff-necked. Everybody that Jesus is encountering uh, over the over Luke twenty two is in some respects stiff necked. So we're going to use this in part as a diagnostic. We're gonna we're gonna ask ourselves, what does this look like? How would I know if I were stiff necked? What does it look like to be this prideful? And the first section of this message will just be going through verses thirty one all the way down to seventy one, and just noticing all of the various symptoms of stiff neckery as I created the term. The first one is this. When we are stiff-necked, we are more pious. We think we are more pious than we are. We think we are more pious than we are. The word pious comes from a Latin word for devotion or dedication. In verses 31 through 34, Peter is feeling extremely pious. He is confident that he would be able to die with or even die for Jesus And in verses 54 through 62, we see that all of his confidence in his own piety and his own devotion comes crashing down. You know, some of us, like Peter, think that we are more devoted to God than we really are. And all of us think we are more devoted to goodness than we really are. Did you ever notice that that we all believe that we all are more resolute in our morals than we actually are? You ever notice there's this moment when we really do think that we'll stick to that diet, that we'll stick to that budget or that Bible reading plan. And there's a moment where we feel so sure that we'll be able to devote ourselves to this that it would feel strange to us that we hadn't managed to do this before. Like, like oh, I'll, I'll be okay this time. I'll, I'll be able to obey God's word in this way this time. I'll be able to overcome that sin which keeps knocking me down this time. There's, there's a sense in which we grow very easily confident in our ability to be devoted to God. And then in whatever way, whatever, whatever real life way, the rooster crows three times. And all of this imagined devotion that we thought we had, is just vanishes. There's this moment after the rooster crows three times, Jesus looks at Peter and Peter understands that all of this devotion he was taking pride in didn't exist. It was, it was all an illusion. It was all a vapor. And it says he went away and wept bitterly. Have you ever felt just a, just a profound disappointment in yourself over your inability 
to live up to the standard, not only that you took pride in, but the standard that you judged other people with often. You know, there's this moment of, of brokenness, this moment of being undone. I, I read, went away and wept bitterly. And I, I just think about these moments when you are profoundly sorry, you're profoundly empty and broken, and even your tears feel offensive to you in some respect. The, the, you, don't, you don't want more of you, even more of your own tears. There's this inescapable sense of, I can't even escape me right now. We, uh, we are often convinced that we are more pious than we really are. We are often convinced that we are more powerful than we really are. Luke uh, 22, verse uh, see, 63 or so says, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Now, this is just crazy. I just want you to lock in on the phrase uh, in verse 63. Now, the men who were holding Jesus in custody. Let's just, let's just hold that sentence for a moment, okay? Hold that sentence in our imaginations for a moment. These guys really thought they were in control of Jesus, it's just one big illusion. Not, not just this moment, but the very concept of human control is one big illusion. They really thought they held him in custody. Right? Of course, they couldn't kill him, much less control him. But they were under this very powerful illusion that they were powerful. We often think we can control this life. And we can't. You know, you know, what is your plan for having the life you want? If you were honest and not give me the Sunday school answer, what is your plan for having the life you want? You know, those plans are as solid as the rope that bound the hands of God in this verse. It's an illusion. You don't have control over any of it. But we think we're quite powerful. We think we have something to say about all this. We don't. We think we're more perceptive than we are. Look at verse 63 again. They were mocking him and beating him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. You know, all of the enemies of God love to, to ex exercise rhetorical devices that make God look like a contradiction or make God look like a hypocrite. Uh, most of their so-called persuasive arguments against the existence of God have to do with pitting two of God's claims against each other. Perhaps the most famous being the problem of evil and the goodness of God. Right? So, 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 so what the enemy does against the character of God is it says, God, you claim to be strong and you claim to be loving, but if you're both of those things, then why does all of this evil occur. And there are many other examples of this. This is, this is the, the, the red meat to the delusional God-haters whenever you can try to prove that God is contradicting himself in some respect. And what you see in this passage is that very same approach. You get that? They blindfolded him and they're punching him. And they're saying, prophesy. 
which one of you, which one of us struck you? They're saying you claim to be able to see these things. Prove it. So they, they think they're very clever right now. Whoever came up with this little joke, everybody thinks is just super clever right now. Like, oh, you're showing him. You're proving that he isn't who he says he is. Yeah. We're often more perceptive. We often think we're more perceptive than we really are. You know, someone was telling me last week about the unbelief they held in their youth. And they said something like, you know, at the time when I decided that none of this was real, that Jesus wasn't real, that the Bible wasn't real, at the time, it all felt really well thought out. I thought I saw these contradictions. I thought I was being intellectually honest. But looking back, I was barely thinking at all. Part of being stiff-necked is that you think you're more perceptive than you really are. Well, not only that, but another aspect of being stiff-necked is that we think we're more important than we really are. Look at verse 66. When day came, the assembly of the elders and the people gathered together, both the chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. So what you've got here is the Sanhedrin. It's the council of uh, Jewish rulers from various sects. Uh, Pharisees would have been in here. The Sadducees would have been here. Elders within the community would have been here. And it was 71 important people, and they all sat in a semicircle, and they weighed these important questions. You know, (laughs) these people don't have names anymore for the most part. And the ones that do are infamous, not famous. And none of them are important. In this moment, we'll talk more about this in in a little bit. In this moment, they actually think it their place to try God. We often think that we are more persuadable than we really are. In verse 66, you've got some of the smartest and most powerful people in Israel saying, Tell us if you're the Christ. And Jesus says to them, if I told you, you would not believe. You know, this is this is one great evidence, by the way, that that, that we are stiff necked To, to do the Jeff Foxworthy thing again. If you think God owes you an explanation, you might be stiff necked. Right. But these people are saying, just tell us, tell us who you are. And Jesus says, let me tell you something. If I tell you who you are, who I am, you won't believe. You know, we all like to think we're open to reason. That if new information came our way, we would change our minds. We have a very poor recognition of our own observational biases. We really think that we're more persuadable than we really are. I follow, uh, I read a a guy who's a well-known angel investor, mostly in Silicon Valley, and he just moved out of Silicon Valley, left the area, and they asked him, why did you leave? And he said, there's come to be a level of intellectual smugness that I found with every passing month to be less and less tolerable. Closed-mindedness masquerading as open-mindedness. And man, it is easy for us in this red state to look and say, yeah, that's the problem, man. That's the problem with, well, that's, that's not the problem with the left. It's the problem with the human heart. 
You think you're more persuadable than you are. You think you're more interested in the truth than you are. You're interested in confirming your own biases. So there are all these ways in which we are more, we are less than we think we are. And here's the problem with that. Pride is a force multiplier of pain. Pride is a force multiplier of pain. Think with me. I made, I made two different statements as I was working through there. I made two statements. One, that we are truly weak, that we are truly small, that we're truly kind of dim, that we don't have a lot of control, right? that, we're, that we're stubborn. So that's, that's one level of statements. But there's another level that says not only are we those things, but we think we're the exact opposite. Okay, so, so it's one thing to say that I'm flaky and I'm powerless and I'm dim and I'm unimportant and I'm small-minded. That's all difficult to say, but it's true and only a little dangerous. The real danger comes in when we are all those things, but we think we're devoted and we think we're powerful and we think we're perceptive and we think we're persuadable. Right? There's two different kinds of danger here. The one is a clumsy, weak, small-minded, stubborn person who knows it. But there's another layer. And this is where pride is the force multiplier of pain. It's not simply that you're those things. You think you're the opposite of those things. And then you're truly dangerous. Right? Most of the damage you will inflict on others will not be because you're inept. It will because you are inept and think you're awesome. You will, from time to time, step on someone's toes. Oscar Wilde said, a gentleman is one who never hurts anyone's feelings unintentionally. <laughs> By that definition, none of us are gentlemen. We all hurt each other unintentionally. But I want to tell you, that's stage one of something that becomes much more serious. It's not being clumsy. It's not being weak. It's, it's, it's not being powerless. It's... it's it's not even being stubborn that causes the problems. What causes the problems is believing that instead of, you're, of, instead of being weak, that you are strong. That instead of being out of control, that you're in control. That's when everything gets crazy. Pride is a force multiplier of pain. Think of it this way. The drunk is one kind of danger to society. But the drunk who thinks he can drive is another kind of danger to society. The sin of drunkenness is bad enough, but add to it the sin of pride and you've got exponential damage taking place. Pride is a force multiplier of pain. And that's what we see in this text. Not simply weak people, not simply stubborn people, not simply dim-witted people, but people who think they're the opposite of those things. That's where all the pain and tragedy is coming from. Their lack of humility, their strong pride, their delusion that they are more than they really are. Meanwhile, in this same text, Jesus is more than we think he is. So the first point is essentially, I am, I am less than I think I am. And the second point is, Jesus is more than I think I am. Everybody in our text is discounting Jesus. They're all missing his greatness. They're all missing how truly devoted, how truly powerful, how truly perceptive Jesus is. You know, there's this moment where Peter's devotion just vanishes. It's, it's a fake devotion. It just vanishes like vapor. 
And then as the vapor fades away, you see Christ's devotion to Peter. And it's not going to fade away. It's the real thing behind the fog. You know, there's this, this moment where the, the guards feel exceedingly powerful as they're holding Jesus in custody. And that's going to vanish like a vapor in another couple chapters. And there's going to be a real power that won't vanish behind that. The panish of the power of Christ over the grave. And speaking of those guards, there's this moment where they blindfolded him and they're beating him and they're saying, prophesy, who struck you? It, it, it's, it's entirely possible Jesus in that moment could have, if he wanted to, say something like, that was Marcus. You're 31 years old. You were born in Corinth on April 3rd. And you're afraid of the dark. The true cost of pride besides hurting the people we love, besides hurting ourselves in many, many ways, the true cost of pride is that pride keeps us from seeing Jesus as he really is. In this passage, we see human beings grossly overestimating their own abilities. And as a consequence, this is huge, as a consequence of that, grossly underestimating Christ's worth. That's a big idea in the Bible. Those two things are attached at the hip. It's sort of a teeter-totter effect. Where one is up, the other is down. Where one is down, the other is up. Here's just simply the, the main point of this message and why you should care mostly about not becoming prideful or about repenting from your pride. The higher view you have of yourself, the lower view you have of God. It's that simple. And that low view of God has devastating consequences on this life and, most importantly, on your eternity. Look at verse 66. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, I tell you, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. That's a little confusing. What does he mean? From now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Well, this is what he means. The Sanhedrin has Jesus on trial. Its members are his judges. His fate is in their hands. But if Jesus is to rule from God's side in heaven, then they cannot judge him since he is their judge. Jesus argues in that verse that whatever happens from now on is irrelevant because his rule from God's side will follow. People think they have the right to make a judgment about Jesus. But the judgment that counts is the one that Jesus makes about them. Right? That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, your low view of me is going to cost you. Not just in this life, but in eternity. Because what you're doing is you're discounting me and I'm your judge. I'm the one who will decide who you are. I'm the one who will decide where you go. I'm the one that will decide your future eternity. Commentary says he was informing them that as the Messiah, he fully expected to survive death, that he fully expected to survive the death that they had planned for him. 
and to be seated forever at the right hand of the power of God. Even though they were presently judging him, he would soon be enthroned as their judge with all the power of God Almighty given to him. This is the most devastating consequence of pride. The higher view we have of ourselves, the lower view we have of God, and God is the judge. God is the greatest good in this life and in eternity. And God is the decider of who we are, of where we go, of how this life will be, of how eternity will be. Here's the problem. For the unrepentantly prideful, for the people who can't get a big self out of their heart, hell will serve as an eternal reality check that there is a God and you weren't him. That's what hell is. An eternal reality check about your inability, about your darkness, about your lack of persuadability, about your lack of perceptiveness, about your lack of power, about your lack of devotion. An eternal reality check about how small you are and how big God was all the time. But you couldn't see it because self was so profoundly inflated in your eyes. Discounting Jesus is the ultimate consequence of self-importance and worshiping him is the only cure. Let me say that again, a little bit different way. Discounting Jesus is the fatal affliction of self-delusion. It's the thing that'll kill you. It's, it's the worst part about being prideful. And worshiping him is the only cure for it. The only way to get out of pride is to worship Jesus. But here's the problem. How can we worship him if we are struck with the delusion of self-importance, how can we be cured of pride by worshiping Jesus if the consequence of pride is an inability to see Jesus as big and good and glorious? You get what I'm saying? We're stuck. Because when we see ourselves big, we see God as small. And the only cure to not seeing ourselves as big is to see God as big, which we can't do because we're stuck in our pride. We're stuck. We're trapped. There is no way out of this cycle and it will continue as we get bigger every year and as God gets smaller every year and it becomes even less probable that we will worship him and follow him and see him as central. So that this really is a cycle of condemnation. This really is a cycle of judgment. I can't worship him, which is my only hope of getting out of this cycle because I see myself as much bigger than him. So righteousness has to come to us from somewhere outside of us. And it has to come to us when we are incapable of grasping it on our own. It has to come to us apart from our own works. Because the cycle that we're caught in is all about celebrating and boasting in our own works. The theologians would say we need a monergistic imputation of alien righteousness. A simple way to say it would be this. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The only way out of this cycle is for God to do something to us. 
to make ourselves seem small and make him see big, seem big. The gospel, friends, is such good news. It really is the only way out of this cycle that will destroy our marriages, our lives, our eternity. Think about it. Jesus willingly in this passage surrenders his power and his importance and his perceptiveness. He surrenders it all. He allows himself to be blindfolded. He gave it all to sinners. And he willingly took up all of God's wrath against all of our pride. He took all of our big, boastful, self-delusional pride on himself. Think about it. At the peak of my false pride, Jesus took on my actual poverty. And he put his true worth in me. At the peak of of my false pride, God took on my actual poverty and invested his true worth in me. (laughs) And that's what it means to trust Jesus. That's what it means to get saved. It means to get to this moment where you say, oh my goodness, I am stuck in a cycle I cannot escape. And self-reform will only lead to more boasting. Self-reform will only lead to more condemnation because if I raise my standards, I'll use those very standards to judge others. And then one day, just like it's happened a million times in the past, I will fail at my own standards and I will be undone again. And I'll try to self-reform my way out of this cycle once again. And I'll begin to boast in my efforts at self-reformation. Someone has to come to you from outside of you to change this. And that's what Christmas is. Jesus enters this world to redeem people caught up in eternity-destroying pride by taking on the consequences of that pride before the God of the universe. So if you're here this morning and, and, and there's any bit of this that's, if, it, if, this is, if this is the landing, if this is speaking to you in one particular way, here's, here's where I would always want to go. I would always want to go and say, Lord, if there's any part of me that's trusting in me to, to stand before you as judge, to to even make my marriage work or to even make my life work, if there's any part of me that's in there that I'm trusting in, take it away and replace it with Jesus. And let me hope only in Him. Let me hope only in what He has done for me. You know, when when you're 16, when you're 10, and you're growing up in a Christian home, these lines get very blurred. Some of you grew up in a home where the standards were appropriately high. But you've never realized, honestly, because you're young and you haven't seen how epically you will fail. And you don't need to, by the way, not not entirely. But you don't realize how those standards, apart from Christ's power outside of you, 
have to happen, how, how Jesus has to invade your life, how your only hope is in Jesus' righteousness, because you don't realize how over time, even at 10, even at 16, you've begun boasting in this vaporous righteousness that you've managed to cobble together for yourself. Because honestly, you're not having to do really hard things yet. You don't, you don't have the keys to the car. You can get drunk. No, this is a, a metaphor, by the way. You, you don't have the, the, the opportunity to exponentialize your sin. But you will. Just like in a, couple, in a couple years, maybe months, you'll have the opportunity to see how much of a fraud you actually are. How you should never want to trust in yourself to stand before God, let alone to live this life. And you will, Lord willing, by power of His grace, through the Holy Spirit, feel utterly desperate for a solution outside of yourself. And Jesus will be there. The application of this message is twofold. Please, this morning, I prayed this morning that if anybody here hasn't been transformed by this imputation of alien righteousness, by the application of Jesus' righteousness, by trusting in Jesus' righteousness alone. I prayed this morning that if anybody's here that hasn't done that, that you would see that this is a unique opportunity where the whole church of God is hitting pause on a bunch of other things we could talk about because at the end of the day, Jesus Christ came into this world to seek and save those who are lost. And if there's only one person in this room who hasn't yet seen this happen in their life, suspect that at some level you are still mostly trusting in self. Who see, honestly, if you were sincere about it, Pretty strong evidences of pride in your young life, in your old life. That you would understand that it will not end well. You will hurt yourself. You will hurt the people you love. Most importantly, you will do as they did in this passage. You'll completely miss the one name under heaven and earth by which men and women can be saved. So I prayed this morning that God would save somebody as his gospel is proclaimed. And I I prayed this morning that, that, that as we walk in our faith, those who have at one point trusted in this, we understand how quickly we begin to trust in self again. And I just want to read some verses to you about pursuing weakness, about allowing weakness to have its proper role in our lives. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with a stiff-necked congregation in the city of Corinth. They're delusional. They think they are more than they are. And consequently, they think that Jesus and Paul are less. And Paul responds with some profound wisdom. He says in 2 Corinthians 11.30, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. He says in 2 Corinthians 12.9, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness 
so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The next chapter, he says, of Jesus. For he was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him. But in dealing with you, we live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope that you will find out that you've not failed the test. The reason, the reason Paul says what he says about take the test. Do you pass the test? Examine yourselves to see if you're in Christ. You know, you know why he's saying that? Because this church had real no visible evidence that they understood how important weakness is and how dangerous pride in self is. Again, speaking to those especially grown up in Christian homes, but not, not exclusively, this is key. How do you discern where you are in the faith? Not where mom and dad is. How do you discern where you are in the faith? Do you understand how important your personal weakness is? to guarding your soul and causing you to trust in Christ? Or are you on a mission to make much of yourself? Are you on a mission to make much of yourself? Are you on a mission to be a false version of devoted, a false version of powerful, a false version of perceptive? Paul's asking them to take the test because as far as he can see, the outward evidence suggests they don't love Jesus. They don't understand what Jesus offers them. Strength through his weakness. Friends, at, at bottom line, I want to leave you with this. Resisting weakness is the spiritual equivalent of resisting oxygen. Resisting weakness is the spiritual equivalent of resisting oxygen. Whether you're here and you don't know Jesus and the Holy Spirit's speaking to you this morning about trusting him as the only source of your righteousness, or you're here and you've done that and you're struggling to walk in that, let's be clear, running away from your weakness, resisting weakness is like holding your breath. It'll kill you. Today, may the Lord of grace come to you where you are and help you to see it's only because of what He has done and will do for you that you have any hope of escaping this devastating cycle. I believe the term stiff-necked refers to an animal. Most of the time, animals, you, you tie a rope around their neck or you put a bit in their mouth or put a muzzle on them and you can lead them. And, and usually there's a little bit of a negotiation that takes place where the animal comes to terms with what's going on. But you know, there are some animals who just, and not, not a particular breed, just animals like a horse, a dog, will just refuse. The harder you pull, the more stiff neck they'll get. Those are the people who go to hell. When they hear things like this, and they stiffen their neck. Don't resist the weakness that would come from telling someone, you know, I don't think I was a Christian. 
I think I've been trusting in my, don't, don't, don't stiffen your neck against that. Don't stiffen your neck against right now reaffirming your only hope is Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we do think we're more devoted than we really are. We, we do think we have more power over this life than we really do. We do think we're very insightful and we, oh, we understand and we see. We, we think we have a lot more importance than we do and we definitely, Lord, we definitely think we're more persuadable than we are. Today, if you were to reach out and change a life, it wouldn't be because we were open to reason. It wouldn't be because someone said the perfect thing. It would be because you invaded a life in the midst of sin at the peak of pride and you brought your grace and your righteousness to someone who did not deserve it. We pray, God, that you would do that today. We thank you, God, that you have done that many, many times in the past and will do it many, many times in the future. Our only hope, Lord, is in your perfect righteousness. So let us come to you this morning with a sense of desperation to have you and nothing else. Don't let us walk through this life stiff-necked. Have mercy on us, even though we don't deserve it. We're so boastful and so full of ourselves. Have mercy on us, Lord. Give us grace when we demand rights, Lord. Give us grace. Overcome all of our foolishness and sin and objections. Be big. Be central. Be only in our hearts, Lord. In the name of the only Savior, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. This table.